Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Indian Ocean series of the Ajam podcast. This is your host, Lindsay Stevenson. Now, because this is the first episode of the series, I've invited my good friend and eminent scholar of the Indian Ocean, Fahad Ibshara, to introduce listeners to this new space that Ajam is exploring. Fahad is an assistant professor of history at the University of Virginia and author of the award-winning book, A Sea of Debt, Law and Economic Life in the Western Indian Ocean, 1780-1950. Fahad, thank you for joining me for this conversation. It's a pleasure, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. So for our listeners, the Indian Ocean might not be a term that evokes any particular geography other than a vast ocean on the world map. So why don't we start out with a simple set of questions? Where is the Indian Ocean? What is the Indian Ocean? And when was the Indian Ocean? How do people who write about the Indian Ocean frame this space? All right. I I mean, I'm glad you're asking these big questions, because I think even for practitioners of Indian Ocean history, it's not a very clear space. It's a probably too big of a space to take on all at once. So the, the Indian Ocean geographically is, of course, the body of water that's bordered roughly, you can say, by Africa on the western end. And we might say it ends with Southeast Asia on the eastern end, with India as sort of fulcrum geographically. The Indian Ocean is rarely taken on by historians as a singular space, it more than often broken up into two halves. You either work on the Western Indian Ocean or you work on the Eastern Indian Ocean. There are, of course, some uh, notable exceptions to that. There are people who work on sort of migration between Arabia and Southeast Asia, for example, and some work on, say, the, the Chinese and the Western Indian Ocean in the early period. But for the most part, people either work on the Western Indian Ocean or the Arabian Sea, or, on the other hand, the Bay of Bengal, which is just more recently becoming a sort of literature or field subfield in its own right. In terms of when was the Indian Ocean? I mean, if you ask historians of the Indian Ocean, or if you pick up a textbook on the history of the Indian Ocean, it's uh, it's been there since time immemorial. I mean, we have records of trade and movement in the Indian Ocean from uh, as early as the first century AD. And some might even point to archaeological evidence that that suggests sort of much earlier movements and circulations around the Indian Ocean. Of course, that Indian Ocean world is very different from the Indian Ocean world that comes later. And so historians roughly, I would say, classify the Indian Ocean world into a sort of ancient times to the rise of Islam, rise of Islam until hmm, roughly 1500, which is the date of the Portuguese entry into the Indian Ocean world. And from there, it takes on a series of sort of imperial epochs, the Portuguese century, the Dutch century, and then finally the sort of the British moment in the Indian Ocean world. And depending on the historian that you're reading, it either ends there or it continues into the 20th century. And how can we compare the Indian Ocean to other kind of oceanic spaces that the listeners might be familiar with. Does it sort of map nicely onto how we think about the Mediterranean or the Atlantic world? Or is the Indian Ocean a different kind of entity altogether? Well, it's similar to those other oceanic spaces in that they're all oceanic spaces that historians have recently come to think with, but they're distinct from one another in incredibly important ways. First, the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is, of course, sort of historically or historiographically the oldest sea. This is where classical Greek civilization flourished, and and even in the literature on oceanic history, the Mediterranean was essentially the first oceanic space that historians took as a whole unit. 
it. The historiography of the Indian Ocean, the literature on the Indian Ocean world, owes a major debt to the work of Fernand Braudel, the, the Mediterranean. People often imagine the pioneering work of Indian Ocean history to be that of K.N. Chaudhry, Trade and Civilization in the Indian Ocean, and Chaudhry is very clear about the, the intellectual debt that he owes to, to Braudel. The Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean are very different geographically, of course. The Indian Ocean is much broader than the Mediterranean. It's also much deeper than the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is is really, I think, oceanically speaking, it's really just like a pond in terms of in terms of depth. <laughs> it is. It it's not a very deep body of water. Crossings in the Mediterranean although uh, sometimes dangerous, are not nearly as perilous as crossings in the Indian Ocean world. And the Indian Ocean is, or I should say movement around the Indian Ocean, is structured by a set of seasonal winds, the monsoon winds, which occur in a particular pattern every year in a way that one just doesn't find in the Mediterranean, where movement around the Mediterranean is more shaped by one can say surface currents than than the, the Indian Ocean. The Atlantic, on the other hand, is... Equally deep as the Indian Ocean has the same sorts of seasonal winds, trade winds in the Atlantic, not monsoon winds. They look very different, of course. The major difference between Atlantic and Indian Ocean history is that historically, as a, a historical arena, the Atlantic is quite young. One cannot conceive of an Atlantic history prior to Columbus voyages. There's just no such thing. Although, of course, there were people on the other end of the Atlantic. Prior to that, there were no historical processes that linked the two sides of, Atl- of the Atlantic world prior to, to 1492. Whereas, as I said earlier, the processes and interactions that linked the coasts of the Indian Ocean world can be seen from as early as the first century, if not, if not well before that. And so should we think of what's holding this space together as essentially environmental? Is it first comes the winds and then comes the trade and then everything else builds on top of that? You know, it's a good question. I think that's that's the way historians of the Indian Ocean have traditionally done it. Pick up any uh, survey of Indian Ocean history, literally any survey, and it will begin with a description of the monsoon winds and uh, the seasonal patterns of rain and wind and fluctuations of rain and wind that produce particular patterns of movement around the Indian Ocean. And from that, you layer on movement of people, circulation of goods. And then on top of that, you layer on empires. It's a very sort of Braudelian schema in which the deep structures of history are geographical or sort of environmental, and everything else is essentially froth. I wouldn't consider myself as one of the historians, Indian Ocean historians, who would place such an emphasis on environment. I think although that Although I think that environment is important, we then, uh, in emphasizing and re-emphasizing the monsoons, we end up with essentially an environmental determinism, as though this couldn't have happened without the monsoons. Maybe it couldn't have. But those are not the principal forces that are shaping many of the circulations or interactions there are places that are connected by monsoon winds, sort of environmentally, that share no meaningful historical connection. And there are places that are not connected by monsoon winds, because of course, monsoons don't follow exactly the same pattern everywhere, that do share a much more meaningful connection with, um, with one another. So I wouldn't say that it all begins with the wind, and then everything else comes after that. Maybe yes to a limited extent, but we, in doing that, we are, in a sense, robbing historical actors of uh, historical agency. I remember reading 
something like this formulation in your dissertation about how we're taking away from the the human agency, the human element to put it off off on the winds. And people work to forge relationships. And just because there's wind doesn't mean there's trust. Yeah, I, I feel like if we replace too much weight on the monsoon winds, we end up with most of the time we end up with the same old story. And there's nothing surprising anymore. And it's the same story of essentially what the historian Richard Hall called in you know the 80s, the empires of the monsoon. Okay, we know that story. Okay, And there's no need to sort of retell it every 10 years, although there's clearly been a need to republish it every 10 years. Uh, the stories that Indian Ocean historians are coming up with now are much more surprising ones. The connections that they're coming up with are much more surprising ones and much more interesting ones than the old trade and empire story, even though the trade and empire story is, of course, interesting in and of itself. While we're still kind of on the subject of circulations and moving around the Indian Ocean, can you give us a sense of what kind of time scale we're talking about? Like, how long does it take for people to get all the way around the Indian Ocean? Or are they just, you separate it into the eastern and western portions? Are people mostly circulating in one or the other? For people who are unfamiliar with this region? Well, that's a good question. I think that we have plenty of evidence from an earlier period to suggest that people did move from one half of the Indian Ocean to uh, the other during a single sailing season. And even from sort of more modern history, movement from, say, Indonesia to Hadramaut, or sort of southern Yemen, and back in, in a single season. There, There's no way to actually quantify how long it takes to get around the Indian Ocean, because people aren't going in a single unbroken journey around the Indian Ocean. There's no, There'd be no... A fathomable reason to. If you're sailing on an Indian Ocean ship, you're doing it, let's say, for the purposes of trade. And if you're trading, you're going to a very specific destination or you're going to a sort of a set of port cities. There's a particular itinerary. And so you're spending however much time in each particular port city. Ideally, I think for, for many of these uh, ships that are circulating around the Indian Ocean, you would make it from your home port to your destination and back in a single sailing season, in a single year, or maybe depending on depending on where you're going, twice a year. So let me talk about an example I'm much more familiar with, the Dows of the Gulf during the late 19th and early 20th century. The voyages from the Gulf would begin usually in August, September, they'd go up to Basra, and then it would take however long it took to load a cargo. And sometimes that was a matter of days, sometimes it was a matter of weeks, sometimes they wouldn't leave until, you know, late November. From there, if one were to try to sail directly to Western India, it would take roughly two weeks to reach Bombay, give or take a couple of days. Of course, you're not usually going to Bombay first. Most often, you're going to Karachi first, and then you'll go to Bombay. And then you'll spend any number of days in any number, any one of these places, depending on the time of the year in terms of wind patterns, depending on the time of the year in terms of the business cycle, but also depending on the time of the year in terms of, I mean, is it is it Ramadan? Is it not? Those sorts of things determine how long you stay in a particular port. Traders going to India could make the back and forth journey from, say, the northern Gulf to India twice in one sailing season. And the sailing season here, I'm counting as roughly August to roughly May, uh, because 
the crews would have to be back, sailors would have to be back in time for the pearl dive, the summer pearl dive in the Gulf. Those who want to go to East Africa would not be able to return and to go back and forth twice a year. It's just impossible. So it would take an entire sailing season to make one journey all the way down to Zanzibar and back, whether one coasted along South Arabia and down the east coast of Africa or crossed from India to East Africa, which, uh, which happened not infrequently. So you're saying some boats go straight from the northern Gulf to East Africa and some first go to Mumbai and yeah. then across. Yes. They cross yeah. the open water. It's not just Yeah, no, absolutely. We have plenty sailing. of examples of people who cross the open waters. Most probably not from Bombay. They would go much from much further south in India from from Calicut, from Mangalore, and from there they would cross over not directly to Zanzibar, but they would cross over to, say, oftentimes to Aden or to a, a slightly more northerly port in East Africa, Lamu or the Somali coast, and then they would coast down. Great. Thanks for all of the texture in that example. So we're not used to thinking about history in terms of oceanic regions. I think most people tend to break down their knowledge of the world in terms of continents or or these regions that have just sort of come to us, but we haven't really interrogated what, say, for example, Western Europe means or what the Middle East means. So how does thinking with this category of the Indian Ocean help us to revise our view I'm, of I'm glad history. you asked that because I think that's actually the core at the core of the Oceanic History Project, whether one is working on the Indian Ocean or Atlantic or Pacific or whatever it is. I think first, we spent all this time just now talking about ships, but actually ships are in some ways besides the point. Because if we spend all of our time talking about ships, all we're really doing is another form of maritime history, which doesn't really change much of anything. Of course, ships move around the water. That's what ships do. But it is the meaningful connections that these circulations produce, right? Connections, historical connections, connections between societies, uh, connections between markets, that's what really animates the history of a place like the Indian Ocean. And it creates an alternative historical arena to the land-based categories that we're used to thinking with. Land-based categories that actually places that border the Indian Ocean littoral are, are often peripheral. To take the example of Middle Eastern history, which probably most of the listeners are, are more familiar with, the countries of the, of the Gulf on either side of the Gulf, I should say on the Arab side of the Gulf, and then the, the sort of the cities on, on the Persian side of the Gulf, and the countries of South Arabia are in a Middle Eastern historiography quite peripheral, actually. They're not, they're not at all important to the, the traditional sort of received narratives of modern and early modern Middle Eastern history. They have, they have very little to do with, say, the Ottoman Empire, or even the Safavids, who were active at different times on the coast, of course. But the coast is not considered central to sort of early modern Iranian history or modern modern Iranian history. So then what do we do with these places? Part of the answer is to say that their history might lie elsewhere, right? That they might share more meaningful connections with places other than the land-based categories that we've assigned them to. So thinking about southern Iran as having a meaningful connection with, say, western India. 
right? Or the Arab countries of the Gulf as having a connection with, with India as well. Or uh, South Arabia with East Africa. And we see that these are actually historical processes that are very much alive. The reason that we have not foregrounded them and have not paid attention to them until very recently is because the categories that we have been trained to think in, the Middle East, South Asia, Africa, these are generated in departmental silos and sort of area study silos, right? There would be no reason for a historian of the Middle East and a historian of South Asia to speak to one another in, say, like the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, right? And even today, these, these sorts of distinctions are, are perpetuated in the ways in which we admit students to history programs, the way in which we conceive of area studies itself. Only now are we, we are beginning to collapse the boundaries between these places a little bit. And so thinking about the ocean is, in fact, thinking about the geographical categories by which we organize history itself. It turns the lens on places like Africa or places like the Middle East to say, well, what gives those places coherence anyway, right? What does a country like, say, Bahrain have to do with a place like Lebanon, for example, historically. Historically speaking, it had virtually nothing to do with it. The only reason we group those two together is because they fall under this category that we've created and that we've reinforced through the creation of uh, area study centers that's called the Middle East, right? But uh, historically speaking, there's nothing there's nothing coherent about it. Places like Bahrain have much more in common with Iran, with, with India, with East Africa than they do places like Istanbul or Cairo or Beirut. And do you think that these these regional categories rely too heavily on a kind of imperial history? And is the reason why the Indian Ocean is not its own own entity in history because there's not a single empire to speak of that ruled over it? Is that one of the necessary elements for grouping spaces together? Yeah, I think that that's a major part of it, that there are empires that we can very easily associate with, say, the history of the Middle East, the Ottoman Empire, the Safavid Empire. And then when it comes to South Asia, the, you know, the Mughal Empire, the British Empire, the limits of thinking imperially have already been made clear to people who work within those traditions anyway, right? Although imperial history has undergone significant changes in the last couple of decades and has emerged as a very sort of interesting and exciting field, there was for a very long time a movement that essentially wanted to write against the history of empire and say that there were sort of social processes that were either local or regional, of which empire was was only one part. I'm not sure that that's what keeps people from working on the Indian Ocean, because Indian Ocean historians will tell you that actually we have our empires. Uh, we have, in fact, we have a series of empires. Most of them are not from the Indian Ocean, but there, there's the Portuguese, there's the Dutch, there's the, the British. And these are European empires. I mean, this is the old world history story. You know, the, these are European empires who established themselves in rather expansive ways within this space. And then, of course, there are regional entities that expanded in various directions at various moments in Indian Ocean history as well that are sort of bound up in these empires. Uh, the example I talk about in my book is the Armani Empire, which emerged as early as the mid-1600s and persisted in various ways until, I would argue, until the 20th century. But, but some people might say that it really ended in the mid-1800s. 
how much does the involvement of empires in the Indian Ocean shape the, the flows around the space? Is it that empires, in fact, actually didn't do much for reorganizing life in the Indian Ocean, and that's why we haven't given them so much importance? Yeah, I think that uh, to go back to part of the earlier question that I didn't answer is what kept people from studying the Indian Ocean and still keeps people from studying the Indian Ocean. And I said, well, it's not it's not empire because we have our empires. But oftentimes, again, the places that are important to Indian Ocean history are considered peripheral to sort of traditional area studies based historiographies, right? For the Middle East, we've already said that, you know, most of these places in the Gulf uh, Oman, you know, even southern Yemen, Aden, doesn't really matter all that much to sort of a traditional Middle Eastern historiography. In fact, one can look at the last five or six textbooks on Middle Eastern history that have been released, and you would hardly even see a single mention of, of the pre-oil Gulf in any of those. And Yemen, I mean, forget it. So that's part of it, is that the appeal of these places has always been questionable, although Yemen, I think, had had a lot of appeal for people for some time. The other part of it is that studying Indian Ocean history necessarily means that one has to transgress these geographical boundaries, that one has to study or read in archives that are scattered in different places. And for a very long time, there were real institutional constraints against doing that. What grant does one get that allows them to go to, say, the Middle East and East Africa? That's not the way uh, Fulbrights were organized, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's only recently that you have funding bodies like, say, the SSRC that have explicitly targeted more multi-sided research. So it's in part institutional. The other part of it is... Uh, and this goes to the question that you are just that you're just asking now is that absent a singular coherent empire in the Indian Ocean world what you end up with are historical processes that are actually quite sort of scattered and differentiated and varied and are moving in lots of different directions and that are in many ways very difficult to pin down if you're not looking for that right the archives that we rely on for writing history are overwhelmingly imperial archives And when one goes uh, into, say, the Ottoman archives, I've never been to the Ottoman archives, but I imagine that it becomes it becomes very (laughs) clear how this uh, sort of this Ottoman empire is organized bureaucratically and how these different pieces fit together and the relationship between the metropole and these various provinces through various sort of circulars that the Ottoman empire sends out or petitions that come in. The same for, say, British India, which I'm much more familiar with. We can get a much clearer sense. I mean, in the in the archives in, say, Delhi or Maharashtra, you get a clear sense of how administration on land works, right? The processes of Indian Ocean history spill out beyond that. So you might catch glimpses of it in these different archives, but they appear more like loose threads than they do a coherent whole. And to bring together that coherent whole, you have to pull these loose threads from one archive to another and connect the, these histories from one space to another. And unless you are writing imperial history in the Indian Ocean, which a lot of people do, but is not considered particularly uh, fashionable, I should say. So if you are writing imperial history in the Indian Ocean, it becomes easier to get that picture. There are, uh, for lack of a better 
phrase there are sort of British grand strategies in the Indian Ocean. The British have a sense of how these different parts of the Indian Ocean world might fit together. If you're trying to write the histories of what Aung San Ho called the people on the other boat, then you have to read different kinds of sources and you have to be able to pull together these accounts of groups that are scattered across different archives and scattered across different spaces and pull them together into a coherent whole and then couple that with other sorts of historical sources. And I think for graduate students, it's actually very difficult work, right? We don't have that much time. We don't have that many resources. And for the people who were doing it in, say, the 1980s and the 1990s, there was a lot of work to be done, a lot of sort of very basic legwork to be done to establish these histories. Those of us who are writing now can rest on that body of work, and we have plenty of hints and clues as to where to go and where to look and what sorts of sources to think with. And so the the nature of the game has changed a lot, and especially now with the advent of online archives and the sort of digital era more broadly, it becomes much easier to draw together sources that had for a very long time been scattered in different libraries are now all on, say, the internet. Of course, they're not all on the internet, but a lot of them are. Yeah, there's a lot of having to almost piece together your own archive when doing field Absolutely. research. It, there's there's almost a, a hint of archaeology <laughs> involved in doing research on these kinds yeah, of spaces. Yeah, because it's not immediately apparent what the important sources are, right? And in fact, Right. To yourself or to the people right, who exactly. hold them. Right, <laughs> exactly. I think for a lot of the people who hold them, there's not a clear sense of what these histories are anyway. But for the historian, it's not like there's, you know, the gazetteer of the Indian Ocean world or something that immediately suggests itself as an Indian Ocean source. We have to do the counterintuitive work of pulling together sources that might not seem like they have very much to do with one another, but are actually speaking to one another in really interesting ways. What makes something an Indian Ocean source? Oh, that's, yeah. that's a in good question. <laughs> in part, what you're asking is like, what makes something Indian Ocean history? I think that, I mean, for lack of a better answer, the short answer is you know it when you see it, right? There's a, there's a sensibility that Indian Ocean historians have, that oceanic historians have, and that guides them in ways that are not particularly clear to those who are not in the field. And I often say to students and to myself that, you know, oceanic history, Indian Ocean history, it's not a coherent field in as much as it is a sensibility, right? It's how you read sources. It's so there's, you know, you can pick up a, an early 20th century work on, say, the history of Kuwait very much something that's born out of a sort of a national project and has been read for decades as part of a sort of a national history, an artifact of national history. You can pick it up and you can read it as that, and it's very clear how it can be read as that. Or you can read it and look at the pieces that don't quite fit within a national, a strictly national narrative. Throw away references to things that are happening in, say, Basra or uh, on the Persian coast or in Karachi that make their way into the narrative of state-making in various ways and the ways in which those are framed as part of this uh, the state-making project. Similarly for, especially in places like Oman, for whom the connection to, say, East Africa is quite durable and political. It's tough to read Omani histories or that were produced in, say, the 19th century or the 18th century without a sense of what's going on in East Africa because processes, events in East Africa bleed into those all the time because it was all part of a singular world. So it's not so much that there is a single Indian Ocean history 
source out there or there is any kind of source that one can immediately identify as an Indian Ocean history source. There might be some, I would say like a, you know, a Dow logbook is very clearly an Indian Ocean source, much more than it is a sort of national, uh, national source. But aside from those, it's the ways in which we read particular sources that make them Indian Ocean history sources. Paying attention to those threads that sort of trail off into very lightly defined spaces. I remember seeing this actually in specifically a book about early educators of Kuwait, some of the where the Sunni ulama had studied. And so many of them were had studied in the south of Iran. And, and I thought, well, where exactly? Like, you know, there's more to this story that... Um, that just trails off into absolutely, the absolutely, and I think the impulses of national history would be to just cut those out of the picture, right? It's that's too much noise. That's that, that's the point at which it becomes messy, and that stuff is not really particularly uh-huh. relevant anyway. You can sort of mention it offhand, but really the story is in say Kuwait or in say Bahrain or whatever it is. Right. Or you can, as an oceanic historian, you can embrace that that's actually part of the story and to try to follow those leads and to see where they'll take you. Oftentimes they'll just they won't take you anywhere. Right there, there's nothing waiting on the other on the other side of the rainbow. But sometimes there is, and sometimes it's not immediately clear what the connections between these places are, or if these places acknowledge a similar depth of connection to one another. Even the suggestion that there could be that, coupled with lots of different sources that can talk about in different ways, can paint a picture of a sort of a connected world, a sort of circulation that really destabilizes our notion of, say, the nation or nation states as building blocks of history. And I think we're now in the the uh, historical moment in which the nation state is not really the sort of the principal unit we think with anymore. Although we still hire for, say, like German history, French history, American history. We still classify ourselves as historians of Egypt, historians of Iran. We are now firmly in the sort of transnational era of history or the era of global history. And I think that oceanic history is a major part of that in that it destabilizes these sort of previously held categories for thinking about historical processes, be it the nation, the continent, the area, the Middle East. The Middle East itself isn't a continent, of course, but it might as well be given the ways in which we've reinforced it through area studies. I have one final question that I wanted us to reflect on here for a moment, which is what kind of common themes animate the study of the Indian Ocean? This is the first episode in this podcast series, and we have a number of episodes that are coming along. So what themes can we look for? What do you anticipate seeing a range of scholars uh, talking about? Well, I think the at the core of it is this notion of a shared world that's anchored in a particular space, right? The Indian Ocean as a space for thinking about history. Whether or not we divide that up into the Western Indian Ocean, the Eastern Indian Ocean, or if we're looking at particular threads of connection, doesn't really matter. It's that the Indian Ocean itself is the principal site in which we do research and on which we are writing rather than, say, the Arabian Peninsula or East Africa or whatever it is. Sometimes that division between Eastern and Western is just a matter of practicality because to be able to do both sides means a lot of different languages and, like you said, a vast geographical absolutely, space. Absolutely, absolutely. And part of this work of doing Indian Ocean history is, of course, acknowledging the limits of what one can do and what one can say about these places. There are histories of the entire Indian Ocean, but 
not every history of the Indian Ocean needs to take into account the entirety of the Indian Ocean, just like not every history of, say, Kuwait needs to write account for every single thing that ever happened in Kuwait, right? Part of what doing Indian Ocean history is, is acknowledging that these are societies that are looking out across the water to one another. This is what the historian Mike Pearson called littoral societies. Societies that principally are anchored on shores and for whom the sea and the coast is really the, the principal site of history. Places that are looking out across the Gulf or across the, the, the oceanic world with one another. And what emerges from that is a shared way of doing things. One might say it's a shared culture. Certainly the historian Abdul Sharif would say that there is an Indian Ocean culture that distinguishes the littoral communities from the inland communities. I think that that is correct to a certain degree. Uh, I think that we can accept that there is something distinct about the Indian Ocean world without reifying some sort of notion of culture in the Indian Ocean. There are shared business practices, or at least entangled business practices, right? There are ways of doing business with one another that bleed into one another if they're not totally shared with one another. There are movements back and forth between different parts of the Indian Ocean world that animate particular histories of connection. And those histories of connection exist in a time frame, in a period that shares very little with periodizations we, we ascribe to land-based categories, right? These connections in the Indian Ocean are forged across time. And these spaces and the connections between these different parts of the Indian Ocean world ebb and flow over different periods of time. These regions come into being. These are historical processes. Uh, these connections come into being and are undone at various moments in history. They're not always there and perduring throughout history. No, they look different at different points, at different points in time. So these are these are some of the questions that the historian of the Indian Ocean world has to grapple with. Questions of sort of space, of connection of circulations and the histories that these circulations might uh, might animate and the very basic questions of sort of periodization that they bring up that force us to rethink the ways in which we've classified these histories. And what about identities and subjectivities? Is this something that we can fairly grapple with based on the sources that we have? Is this a sort of 20th century No, phenomenon? I mean, I think that um, actually the, the Indian Ocean literature has, if nothing else, produced a, a really vibrant uh, literature on precisely these questions from the, if you take Sebastian Prange's work, from the sort of medieval period onward. Who are these people? How do they identify? To what degree are these oceanic connections meaningful for the ways in which they identify? To what degree do Kerala Muslims identify with the sort of the Arab world? A recent article in Past and Present by Ananya Chakravarti took on these very questions of how do we grapple with these questions of identity and the categories by which we ascribe particular strategies of identification amongst groups, particular groups in the Indian Ocean. She uses it to think about the life of this slave, essentially, who moved between different worlds called Gabriel. And then, of course, the work of Aung San Ho talks about how these structures of signification, of sort of how people 
signify identity emerge across these broad spaces and over the course of centuries and how people anchor themselves in particular communities that stretch out across space and time. So the question of, of identity is not one that's unique to the 20th century. I think in the 20th century, with especially the sort of the breakup of, of different empires and the emergence of nationalist movements, it takes on a very different tone. But these very basic questions of who are we and what are we in relation to you are questions that are posed over and over and over again throughout Indian Ocean history. And there are plenty of sources for thinking about it. And thankfully, there's plenty of terrific scholarship out there that, that does that work. Sure. I guess when connection is the name of the game, you're constantly trying to figure out who you are in relation to right. other Right. Who people, you are and so. who your children are. And yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And will be. Yeah. Thank you, Fahed, for sitting down with me and having this conversation. It's been really fun for me. I hope the listeners have enjoyed it. Maybe we'll have you back again to talk more specifically about your work. Yeah, no problem. It's been fun for me as well. And uh, and I'd love to be back and good luck with the series. I look forward to listening to it. Thank you. So for our listeners, uh, feel free to engage with us on social media via Twitter or Facebook. And stay tuned for future episodes of the Indian Ocean series.